Well, this morning we have the privilege of Paul Felix preaching from the Word of God for us, for our edification this morning. Uh, Paul is a professor at the Master's Seminary in Sun Valley, California, and he has, his ministry has impacted uh, many of the men here who have gone to the Master's Seminary, uh, Pastor Pat, uh, Pastor Chris, Todd Swift, and Paul Bright, and some others who have attended the seminary. He, in addition, he is the president of the Los Angel- Angeles Bible Training School, there where he has a strategic ministry uh, to the inner city and to, for training men and uh, folks to get involved in God-centered ministry there in the heart of Los Angeles. And overall, the reason why Paul is here is because he is a God-fearing man who trembles at the Word of God and fears the Word that God has spoken. And we want to have him come and encourage us as he did yesterday when he joined all the men who crowded into the room out there and we were encouraged with the ancient battle plan for sexual purity. So Paul was faithful to open up the word to us yesterday and really demonstrate a great act of love to us to come and preach the word. And we we know in light of the temperature outside that Paul really does love the people of God because he left, was it 80 degrees? Uh, Very, very warm weather in Southern California, almost kingdom-esque weather in Southern California to come here um, and encourage us because we need it. Um, So we love him and we're thankful that he has done that in the first hour encouraged the, the first service, and now no doubt us as well, uh, from the book of First Peter. So it's definitely something we, we need to be encouraged, we need to be strengthened in the Word, and we're thankful that Paul is here to do that. So why don't we go ahead and encourage him this morning as he comes up to preach the Word. Good morning. I'm on this time, right? Good. I bring you greetings from uh, California, and as Eric said, the weather is pretty good uh, at this time compared to what you're experiencing. And uh, I called my wife last night and uh, just asked her how things were going. And she told me that the temperature had risen to about 80 degrees. And we have a convertible. Well, she has a convertible. She lets me ride in it. Uh, But she uh, dropped the top and all of that. So even though we're old folks, we still enjoy riding around in the convertible and enjoying the good Southern California weather. And uh, so it's uh, good to be with you in your midst, and I do bring you greetings from the Master's Seminary and also from the Los Angeles Bible Training School. Uh, not too many people know about the Los Angeles Bible Training School, but it was started by the late uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee and a black pastor with the desire of bringing the Word of God to the L.A. community. So God allowed me to attend that school when I was real young, like 21 years old. And uh, I, I say real young because this month is a historical event in my life. I become a senior citizen. True, I become a senior citizen. I turn uh, 55 this month. So, uh, so I thank God for those 55 years. But at an early age, I went to the Los Angeles Bible Training School, and God used that school to change my life and eventually uh, allowed me to come back and be the president. I've been the president since 2000. So I would appreciate your prayers uh, for the school. Uh, Eric mentioned the fact that men being trained, but we actually train women, not for pastoral ministry, so don't anybody get scared. But we uh, pretty much reach out to lay people and to give them systematic Bible training so that they can learn more about God's word and can be effective uh, in their communities and also in their church. Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. I always like the second service. Uh, the first service, you're under time constraints. And so I didn't get finished. So that's bad news for you who are here at the second service, because I do plan on finishing my message uh, that I have prepared for. So if I go a little bit long, uh, be patient with me. Uh, you won't see me until tonight, uh, hopefully. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. The Apostle Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, 
employ it in serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom glory belongs, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we bow before you this day. We give you thanks for who you are and for the fact that you are great and an awesome and a mighty God. And we praise you for saving us, for making us a part of your family, for giving us your wonderful and magnificent word. And we would ask now that as we seek to hear from you and from you alone, uh, that you might open up the word of God to each of us so that we might know what thus saith the Lord and that we might know what it is that you call us to do. And Father, we realize that without your enablement, without your strength, that there is nothing that we can do to please you. So we plead for your grace. We plead for your mercy. We plead for your enablement to help us to be more than just hearers of the word, but also to be doers of your word. Help us, Father, to see ourselves in the mirror of your word and to bring our lives into conformity to what the word of God says. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory and the thanks for the great work uh, that you are doing in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. A wife who has been married to her husband for 15 years loses him to death. A man who is relatively young has a heart attack and must have triple bypass surgery. A mother of three young children finds out that she has cancer. An athlete injures himself and realizes that his athletic career is over. There are times that we encounter situations and circumstances in life that causes us to change how we live. That wife who had been married to her husband for 15 years now has to live life, so to speak, by herself. That mother who has cancer now has to deal with chemotherapy and now has to face the reality of cancer in her body and what the implications of that actually is. There are times that things happen to us where we just have to pause and we have to stop and we have to consider how am I going to live now in light of this reality. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter confronts us with a truth, with a reality. And it's one of those truths, it's one of those realities that causes the people of God to stop and to ponder what God is saying and how I must live in light of what he is saying. It's a truth that comes from the mouth and from the hand of the Apostle Peter. And I realize that at times Peter gets a bum rap. Uh, People know him for the individual putting his foot in his mouth. But I want to suggest to you that when you think about Peter, that you go far beyond that. Peter, when you see him in the Gospels, is growing. When you see him in the book of Acts, he's a leader. And then when you see his pastoral heart in First and Second Peter, you see a man of God, a man who loves God. I've grown to love the Apostle Peter the more and more I study, particularly the first letter that he wrote uh, to these Christians. He's the one who presents this truth that causes us to stop and to consider how we must live. And he presents it to Christians, Christians who are in Asia Minor. Uh, They are Christians who are considered aliens and sojourners, just like we are. We live uh, in this world, but this world is not our home. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. And as Peter wrote to those Christians who were scattered in different places throughout Asia Minor, he reminded them that they were aliens, that they were sojourners, that they were just passing through. But as he wrote to them, he he wanted them to consider a very important truth. 
And that's the truth that we find at the beginning of verse 7. When Peter says in that verse, the end of all things is at hand. As Peter transitions to this section of Scripture, he he tells his readers a, a significant truth. And it's one of those truths that you can't just simply read and gloss over, but it's a truth that serves as the foundation and the basis of what he's going to say in the rest of this section. And Peter tells his readers that the end of all things is at hand. When he says that, he's not saying that the end of everything will come where it no longer exists. Neither is he like the man who sometimes you find in in the the inner city or in downtowns uh, who holds up the sign and say that the world is coming to an end. Peter is not trying to communicate that per se. What he's trying to let us know is that we live in a particular age. Some would call it the church age. From the standpoint of the biblical writers, they would say that the age that we live in is the last hour, according to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. Paul would call it the last days. Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 1 calls it the end, the last of the time, the end of the times. And the emphasis of this phrase and how the writers look at this time that we live in is that basically it was inaugurated by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his ministry and through his death and his burial and his resurrection, we find ourselves now living in a time that's called the last times, the end of the times, the last hour. And what Peter is saying to his readers and what he's saying to me and to you is that the end of all things, the end of this age is at hand. From God's point of view, It's just a matter of seconds, so to speak, that busting through the door will be the end of all things. To look at it another way, it's Peter's way of saying that Jesus Christ can come at any moment and end this age. He can catch up the church in in the rapture and we go to be with him and we're with him forevermore. And Peter says Jesus' coming can happen at any moment. There's nothing at all that prevents him from coming. And so in light of this, Peter says, we ought to stop and consider how we should live our lives. It's an important truth. But associated with that important truth is the reality that not only is the end of all things at hand, but also judgment is associated with that. We live in a world where people don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And so many people dismiss God. They'll say that God does not exist because they don't want to have to answer to God. But Peter understands that God does exist. And because God does exist, man is accountable to God. And so throughout this letter, he emphasizes the idea of judgment. Just a couple of verses earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, as Peter was talking about unbelievers, he has this to say with regards to the unbelievers. He said, but they shall give an account to him, that is to God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers are continuing in their ways of sin. They might think that the world will end, that they might escape. But the reality of the matter is, Peter says, they're going to have to give an account to the God, the God who judges both the living and the dead. And even a little bit later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter addresses believers and lets believers know that judgment is important in our life. Peter says in verse 17, chapter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? My friends, judgment is a reality. God is going to hold us accountable for how we live. 
And so in First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Peter says that when we cry out to God, we, we cry out to the God that we call Father, but he's the impartial judge. And then in chapter 2, uh, when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufferings that he experienced here on earth, that he didn't retaliate, but what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And so when you take these two thoughts together, that the end of all things is at hand, that it can happen at any moment, and that when it does happen, judgment is going to be a reality, Peter says that we need to stop and consider how we will live our lives. And it's not so much uh, how shall we live, but how must we live and the emphasis is on we, we as the people of God. There's a tendency in our Christianity to just simply see the Bible as written to me individually and almost to ignore the fact that I'm a part of a local church, that I'm a part of the body of Christ. And when Peter writes these words, it's not so much directed at one individual, but it's directed toward a local church, local churches and trying to tell them how to live as the body of Christ in the areas that God has placed them. And so as we come to this text, the question is, how must we live in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, in light of the fact that God is a God who will judge And Peter tells us four different ways that we are to live. He says, first of all, we must live a life of prayer. I just want to tell you at the very beginning that typically when something significant is getting ready to happen, people live, no, take drastic means. And you might think it calls you to a supernatural type of life. But when you look at these commands of Peter, When he tells us how to live, there's really nothing extraordinary about it. It's just basic Christian living. And so even though Jesus can come at any moment, I don't need to be running around like my head has been cut off. I don't need to be frantically selling my house and my property and and wait for him to come. I just need to return to the basics. I just need to live a good, solid Christian life. I need to depend upon God and his enablement to be at work in me so I can fulfill these responsibilities that he gives. So how must we live? We must live a life of prayer. And Peter mentions that in the last part of verse 7. After telling us that the end of all things is at hand, he says, therefore, that is on this basis, on the foundation of this reality, Here are your responsibilities. He gives two commands. He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For what purpose? For what reason? What's the goal, Peter? The goal is the purpose of prayer. Do these things, Peter says, in light of the the times that you're living. But but the purpose is that you might be people of prayer. And, And literally, it's not just singular prayer, but it's prayers. And what Peter has in mind, all types of prayers. The prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of praise. The prayer of adoration. The prayer of confession of sin. The prayer of asking and interceding. And Peter said, we need to be a praying people. And our prayer life should be marked by variety. And not only should it be marked by variety, but when he talks about these all different types of prayers, we need to understand that that means that I do this individually. But if I'm married, I do it also with my mate. And as a member of the body of Christ, I need to be praying with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's individual prayer, it's marital prayer, but it's local church prayer. And all of this needs to be going on in my life in light of this important reality that the end of all things is at hand. Now, if we're going to be effective in our praying, 
There's two things that Peter tells us about in the last part of verse 7. He says, first of all, that a life of prayer requires that we have a sane mind. A life of prayer requires that we have a sane mind. Again, look at our text. Therefore, be a sound judgment. And it's difficult for English translations to get a hold on the Greek word that is translated in NASB as sound judgment. Uh, It's a word that's related to our mind. And it's not only related to our mind, but it's emphasizing that our minds are sound. And and really the the best way to uh, get a handle on what Peter is trying to say uh, is to just remember a story, not a story, but an event that happened in the life of Jesus Christ. In, In Mark chapter five, the Lord Jesus Christ encountered a man possessed with many, many demons. And this man was in pretty bad shape. He didn't hang out with people, but instead he hung out in the tombs. Uh, people tried to bind this man with chains and fetters, etc., but he, he broke them all. And he cried out and he ran it and he raved. But one day he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bottom line of the story is that the Lord Jesus Christ cast out demons from him. And they went into a herd of pigs and they went off the cliff. And the news reached the city about what had happened to this man and what had happened to these uh, this herd of uh, pigs. And so these individuals, they come to Jesus and they come to this man. And Mark chapter 5, verse 15, says this. And they came to Jesus, and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed. And he was sitting down. Not only sitting down, but clothed. And then here's our word, and in his right mind. They came to this man who was once demon-possessed, and now here's a man clothed, sitting down and in his right mind. And it's the same word that Peter uses to exhort me and to you and you to to live a a life of prayer and requiring the fact that we need to have a sane mind. That is, we need to be Christians who are in our right mind. And I would love to tell you that all Christians are in their right mind. I would love to tell you that we don't have Christian lunatics. That we don't have Christians who seem like they've lost a marble or two. That we don't have Christians who uh, seems like there's some screws uh, not tightly wound there. But the reality is that any time as a Christian my, my mind is not connected to truth and reality, then I'm acting like a Christian lunatic. And so what Peter is calling for us, Peter is saying, no, we need to have minds that are sound. Minds that are healthy. Minds that are in touch with reality. And the only way that our minds can be in touch with reality, our mind has to be in touch with the Word of God. The Word of God has to continually and repeatedly be being renewing our mind so that I can see things from God's perspective. So that I can be in touch with reality. And when we're not in touch with reality, it affects our prayer life. When we don't see things from God's point of view, we're not going to be effective when it comes to praying. I don't know about you. Once in a blue moon, I'll come across a person that I think, you know, has lost a marble or two. And sometimes you see a crazy person, but crazy people normally don't pray. I don't find that's one of their activities. And so in our own lives, if our minds are not connected to reality... It's going to affect our prayer life. And so Peter says one of the realities that we need to connect to is that God expects us to pray. God expects us to pray. And and sometimes we have a disconnect with the idea of prayer because we don't believe what the Bible says. We don't believe that God answers prayer. And when we don't believe that God answers prayer, that affects us in our time of prayer and it causes us to act like a spiritual lunatic. Because we have disconnected from reality. Well, if I'm going to have a life of prayer also, 
It requires a sober life. Peter goes on, look at the verse. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Be of sober spirit. And I really don't have to illustrate that very much because uh, we live in a culture, we live in a world where many people have given their lives to alcohol, to wine, to drugs, etc. And so uh, we, we, we have to challenge people to be sober. Uh, many of our kids on college campuses, that's what life is about every weekend, getting drunk, filling their lives with alcohol. And you have some people who are foolish enough and stupid enough that when their lives are filled with alcohol, they drive. And so during certain times of the year, the highway patrol will have sobriety checks trying to determine, is this person sober? So we have people all around us who fill themselves with the the wine, the alcohol, the spirits that come from bottles. But that's not Peter's concern here. Peter's not saying simply, no, abstain from alcohol or abstain from wine. That's a given for him. But what he's concerned about are those who drink the wine of the world. Those who drink the wine of the flesh. Those who drink the wine of the devil. He's talking about being dominated by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that we become drunk. So that we're staggering around. So that we can't think clearly. So that our eyes are bloodshot and we can't see rightly. You see, there's a greater concern that Peter has here than just simply abstaining from alcohol and from liquor. Peter said, I I want you to abstain from the influences of the world system, a world system that's headed by Satan, that is made up of unbelievers, that has values and beliefs that leave God out. So in essence, what Peter is saying is what Paul would say, don't be conformed to this world. It's what James would say, don't be the friend of the world. Don't be spotted by the world. It's what John would say, don't love the world. And some of us are guilty of being a friend of the world. Some of us are guilty of loving the world so that our lives are spotted by the world and so that our lives are conformed to the world. And that's an evidence of the fact that we've been drinking the alcohol, the liquor, the the, the spirits that the world has to offer. And Peter is saying that if you're going to have an effective prayer life, you can't be under the influence of the liquor and the alcohol of the world or other flesh or other devil. And again, I remind you that drunk people don't pray either. And some of the reasons why we have an ineffective prayer life is because of the fact that we're drinking the brew, so to speak, of the world. We're buying into the world's philosophy and concept on how to live a life, how to live life. And so you might have a young person who's dating an unbeliever. And so they're they're not sober. They're staggering in their walk with God. They can't see clearly because they've been drinking from the wrong source. Peter highlights his term sober in other places in his book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to see that because his words in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 are very similar to the words that he has given us in this verse. He gives a, a basically a, a, the exhortation regarding our mind and also regarding our spirit. He says in 1 Peter 1 13, therefore gird your minds for action. That is have sound judgment. Have a sound mind. Have a mind connected with reality. Have a mind prepared. And then he goes on, keep sober in spirit. And there's our word. And then from there he says hope. That is, you cannot set your hope on the grace of God which is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ unless you gird up your minds for action and unless you have a sober spirit and not 
one that is intoxicated by the things of the world. But turn also to First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter really stresses why it's important to have a sober life. It's more than just so that you can be effective when it comes to prayer. But Peter says in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit. And then he goes on to say, be on the alert. And then with a stunning statement, he says, your adversary, your adversary, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter says, be sober. He says, be on the alert. And the reason why is because you have an adversary. You have someone who stands against you day in and day out. You have someone who resists you. And it's not just a, a human being, but it's none other than the devil. And the devil's not just in a corner sitting back in his easy chair watching you live your Christian life. But the devil, Peter says, is, is roaming about. He's prowling around. Seeking whom he may devour. And when I think of that concept, I, I think of the fact that he wants to devour me. He wants to devour my wife. He wants to devour my son. He wants to devour my daughter. And I can act like a drunk man and be oblivious to that fact. But what I need to do is be sober. I need to have a mind that's connected to God so that I can be praying for my wife and my son and my daughter. And some of you parents need to do the same thing. You're walking around and your life has been intoxicated by the things of the world. And the, the, the devil is seeking to destroy you and your family. And so in times like these, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, Peter says we need to live a life of prayer. And that requires that we have a sane mind and a sober life. But the second thing that he tells us in light of this important truth, that the end of all things is at hand, that we must live a life of love. That's what he tells us in verse 8. And his first two words tell us about the priority of love. He says, above all. That is, Peter gives various responsibilities in this section. Some responsibilities in verse 7, some responsibilities in verse 9, and also in verse 10 and 11, and also in this verse. But he looks at each one of those responsibilities as, so to speak, mountaintops, mountain peaks. And he says when, when you line up all of these mountain peaks, the mountain peak of verse 8 rises above all of the other mountain peaks. So that's the mountain that stands out in our mind. And the responsibility is to love, to have this thing called love, to be in possession of love in my life as a Christian. So, so he's saying having love, holding on to love, possessing love day in and day out. The kind of love that says, I seek the best possible good for the person that I'm loving. Not the kind of love that the world talks about, but the kind of love that says, I seek your best possible good. And the only way I can know what is best for you is not for me to determine that, but to know what thus saith the Lord. And Peter talks about the priority of love here. Above all, this responsibility rises up and stands out. And, and so none of us can, and can ignore this. All of us have to be committed to loving, to having love in my possession. Now, when Peter talks about this love, he, it's not the first time. In, in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter talks about love. And he says, love from the heart, love fervently. But he, he says that the reason why you can do that is since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brother. That is, God did something in your heart and in my heart at salvation. Naturally, we cannot love people like we should. And so God understands that. God understands that there are things in my life, things in my heart, some impurities that prevent me from loving like I should. But Peter tells me a wonderful truth. 
Peter tells me that at salvation, my soul was purified. My soul was cleansed. The impurities of my soul were removed. Because I obeyed the truth by God's grace and God's enablement. For a a love of the brethren. And now Peter says, in light of God doing that cleansing work in your life as salvation, I can tell you to love one another. And so he says, love one another fervently and love one another from the heart. In chapter 2, verse 17, Peter talks about love. He says, honor all men, fear God, honor the king. But he also says, love the brotherhood. In chapter 5, verse 14, when Peter comes to the end of the book, what does he say? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, men, you don't have to carry that out with regards to me. Uh, You can do that within your own body. So I'll be exempt from that kiss of love, if you don't mind. I, I tell people the only person I want kissing me is my wife. So she can kiss me all she wants. But a kiss of love. Not just a kiss, but it's a kiss that was an expression of love between brother and brother and sister and sister and brother and sister. And so Peter highlights love. Jesus Christ talked about the superiority of love. He, He said love would be that badge by which men and women and others would know that you're my disciples. And so he told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I would love to tell you that people would know that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ because I teach at a seminary. I would love to tell you that because I'm a president of a Bible training school, people will know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says the way that men are going to know that we are his disciples is if we have love for one another. There's nowhere that you can go uh, in the books of the New Testament and escape uh, this reality that we are called on to love each other. I I know because I I try to escape it. I know there are times that I want to be able to say I don't have to love so-and-so. I don't have to love this person. But everywhere I go in Scripture, I keep keep, keep uh, getting hit over the head with the reality of the fact that I'm called to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Peter tells his readers that they need to be in possession of love. And when he describes this love, he said that it's to be a love for one another. Literally, it's a for one another type love. He, he's describing the love. He's not necessarily really calling, talking about the object, but it's a for one another love. It's a love that is to be uh, taking place in the local church. You loving that brother and sister in Christ, that brother and sister in Christ loving you. This side of the congregation loving the people on that side and that side loving this side. And it goes back and forth like the tennis ball uh, in, in, in the, the, the game of tennis. It's going back and forth and back and forth. And Peter says love for one another is to go back and forth. But not only is it a for one another type love, it's also a fervent love. It's a fervent love. And and there Peter is saying that it's a love that reaches out. It's a love that stretches out. It's a love that exerts energy and effort. It's not the kind of love that's just very lackadaisical and just simply says, well, I'll love those who love me. I'll love my wife. I'll love my kids. And that's the extent of my love. And that's the the, the breadth of my love, so to speak. But no, it's a love that reaches out to all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter how strange and how weird some of them might be. Now, I know you don't have that problem here, but I've been in a few places where there are some strange Christians. And and yet Peter says, love one another. Love those individuals. And and basically, the picture is of a uh, uh, the the muscle, the top muscle of an athlete. And as some of you know, my my daughter runs track. And uh, I would love to use her as an illustration, but my daughter's pretty skinny. Uh, hopefully she won't listen to this message, but uh, she's on the slim side. 
Uh, so when she runs, you don't really see a whole bunch of muscles. But recently when she was running at the World Championship, there was a, another individual from the USA, a guy by the name of Tyson Gay, and he won the gold medal in the 100 meters and the 200 meters. And uh, they took a picture of Tyson Gay and they put it on the cover of a track and field magazine. And when you looked at that picture, what you would see is a man who's giving it all that he has to win, to hit the finish line. And if you were to look at his eyes, it probably would scare you because it looked like his eyes were about as big and as wide as they could get. It looked like his eyes were going to pop out. And then when you look at his necks, you see the veins and, and they're bulging. And every part of his body is saying that he's giving it everything that he has. He, he's reaching, he's stretching, he, he's uh, straining to win. And, and that's what Peter has in mind here when it comes to our love for one another. It's a love that uh, we give maximum effort. It's a love that requires everything that we have. It's a love that says, well, I know I don't really want to love that person, but I'm going to stretch out. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to give it my all in all. And that's what Peter is saying has to be true in the local church. If there's one place where people ought to be able to find love, it ought to be among the people of God. When you think about Peter's readers were living in a hostile world, when they were experiencing suffering and rejection by the unbelievers, how important was this to be able to be among the people of God and to find a love that stretched out and reached out to them, a love that a person gave their all in all, so that when you look at that individual loving, you could say that person was not holding anything back at all. And my friends, that's the kind of love that God calls upon us to demonstrate and to show to each other. So it's a love for one another. It's a love that can be described as being fervent. But it's also a love that forgives the reason why we are to love one another, according to Peter, is because love covers a multitude of sins. That ought to be a wake-up call for all of us. That ought to remind us of the fact that as we deal with each other as Christians, we're not dealing with perfect folks. See, if you were perfect, it wouldn't be hard at all to love you. But the reality of the matter is that we are folks we have all kinds of sins in our life. And the kind of love that we are to demonstrate is a, a love that covers, goes over a multitude of sins, a variety of sins. I, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but, but when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he, he expects the fact that we are going to be involved in different sins. We're not to strive for that. We are to strive to be holy as he is holy. But the bottom line is we fall short. And because we do fall short, when we are among the people of God, we're not to be shunned. We're not to be rejected. But the people of God are to continue to demonstrate love. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that love does not confront sin. The Bible makes it clear. If you see your brother or sister in Christ sinning, you have a responsibility to that person. If they choose not to respond to uh, your uh, encouragement, your advances, then it goes to the church and it could be a situ situation of church discipline. So we're not saying that love ignores sin. But what we are saying is that love covers a multitude of sins. So that when it comes to loving each other, the sins, the multitude of sins, the variety of sins does not stop us from loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Your love cannot do anything as far as an individual's relationship with God. So we're not saying that our love somehow causes God to forgive that person. But, but the love that is being spoken of here covers sin. It, it continues to manifest itself to those who have wronged us. 
to those who have fallen short of God's standard. May I suggest to you that if you want a human example of this, that maybe you consider a mother's love. My mom's love is like that. She's 89 years old. I'm the youngest of four. And we had a a brother uh, who has passed away, but my brother wasn't saved. But I saw how my mom loved my brother, just like she loved me and my older brother and my sister. Despite the things that he did, she would confront him. She would tell him, no, how God wanted him to live. But she didn't stop loving him. I, I think those of us who are parents, we can relate to this. My sons, and my son and my daughter, they're not perfect. But I keep on loving them. Even though there are shortcomings, even though there are things that I'm not satisfied, even though there are things they've done in their past where I've said, no, that doesn't please God, but I keep loving them. And more importantly, if you want a, an example of this kind of love, look toward your heavenly father. Look toward God himself. Think about all the sins that you have committed. Think about all the times you have fallen short of God's standard. And I'm so thankful that when that happens, that God doesn't say, okay, that's enough. I I quit loving you. But no, he continues to love us. And sometimes that love will manifest itself in discipline, et cetera, et cetera. But he continues to love us. And so Peter says that in times like this, we got to live a life of love. And then the third thing that he tells us is that we must live a life of hospitality. The end of all things is at hand. So how must we live? We must live a life of prayer. We must live a life of love and also must live a life of hospitality. And hospitality, simply put, just simply means that I have a concern for strangers. I have a concern for strangers and that concern manifests itself in providing food or or shelter for strangers. The word itself means loving strangers, a friend of strangers. And our Lord Jesus Christ valued hospitality. When he was on earth, he made the statement that foxes have a a, a hole in the ground. And he said, birds of the air, they have nests. But he said, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And so since he didn't really have a permanent home, he depended upon the hospitality of others. And I'm sure one of the people, one of the families that he really enjoyed being with was the family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You remember Mary and Martha? Uh, Martha was so committed to hospitality in Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, that she neglected the most important thing, that is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was hurried and busy about all these things. Why? Because she had a heart of hospitality. I know we get on her case. She didn't choose necessarily the best thing, but she was hospitable. She was committed to uh, being hospitable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord valued hospitality. One of the qualifications of those who are leaders in church is that they be hospitable. Typically, Typically, we think of hospitality as a woman's thing, don't we? Men, Uh, my wife is hospitable. Well, if you're a leader, the issue is not how hospitable is your wife. The issue is how hospitable are you? In in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and in Titus 1, 8 and 9, leaders, elders are demanded to be hospitable. And there was a man in 3 John by the name of Gaius. And and Gaius was hospitable. And the apostle John commended him uh, because Gaius, when uh, individuals were traveling, uh, as they came into the city where Gaius was, Gaius would take them in, show hospitality, and then send them on their way as they went and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, normally when we think about hospitality, it's always in relationship to kind of strangers, to those that we don't actually know. But what's interesting in verse 9 is Peter takes a different slant on hospitality. And so when you look at our text in 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, verse 9, he says, be hospitable to who? To one another. 
He doesn't just say be hospitable. He doesn't just say entertain strangers. He doesn't just simply say uh, welcome those who are traveling missionary. But he says be hospitable. And in, in something strange, he says to one another. He says within the body of Christ, within the local church, there is to be a manifestation of hospitality. And hospitality, just like love, is to be going back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And so as Christians, we're called to be hospitable to fellow Christians. And so the question I would ask you is, do you open up your home to other Christians? Are you hospitable to the members in this church? I'm not talking about the leaders being hospitable. That's a part of it. But what about the lay people being hospitable to other lay people and saying that my home is here for you? I want to minister to you. I want to be hospitable to you. I want to be a friend to you. I want to provide for you. That's what Peter is calling for. And particularly, again, when you remember the context, here are people who are being battered and bruised by the world. Here are people who are being rejected by the world. And, and so now they, they need a friend. They need someone to be hospitable. They need someone to be uh, who will care. And so Peter says, you be hospitable to one another. But he adds two simple words to that. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Because some of you probably, when you heard the fact that you're to be hospitable, you probably were grumbling under your voice. You're probably saying, oh, man, another Christian responsibility. I, now, I don't know about you. I'll just be honest with you. But there are certain people, and I tell my wife, I said, honey, I, I would love to have so-and-so, but, but is there any way that the four kids could be somewhere else? I mean, that's saying, oh, I want to be hospitable, but I'm also grumbling. Uh, the Greek word is an idea of, no, no, you're saying something underneath your voice. Yes, I'm going to be hospitable, but no, you, you really don't want to be hospitable. You're not saying I want to be hospitable with joy and with gladness, but that's what Peter is saying. So Peter says, even though that family has eight kids, we open up our home. And even if those eight kids rip up our homes, we still have an attitude of joy that we can be hospitable, that we can minister to those in the body of Christ. The last thing that Peter tells us is in verses 10 and 11. And there's no way I can exhaust verses 10 and 11 unless I was going to lose your friendship and uh, some of you start walking out on me. But the emphasis in verses 10 and 11 is that we must live a life of service. We must live a life of prayer. We must live a life of love, a life of hospitality, but also a life of service. And the beauty of verses 10 and 11 is that it talks about the whole matter of spiritual gifts. And a spiritual gift is nothing more than a God-given ability for service. And we're to use our gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. I mean, that's what Peter basically says in verse 10. He says that each one, that is, each one of us has at least one spiritual gift, at least one God-given ability for service, as each one has received a gift, a charisma. We have received something that we don't deserve. It's a reflection of grace. So when I look at my gift, when you look at your gift, don't pat yourselves on the back. Like somehow you have done something special to merit it. Every spiritual gift is a manifestation of grace. And as Peter will say later on, not only is it a manifestation of grace, it's a manifestation of the manifold grace of God. And you look at all these gifts that exist in the body of Christ. And you have to say God's grace is multicolored. God's grace is magnificent and wonderful. Because you might have 10 people who have the gift of teaching, but how they use their gift and to whom they use their gift varies. And, and the extent of the gift can be different. But, but, but every gift is a grace gift. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And it's a reflection of God's manifold grace. But Peter goes on to say, just as each one has received a special gift, employ it. Take your gift 
off of the unemployment line. I like the way this translation is. Employ it. Use it. Employ it doing what? To serving one another. Again, the context is the body of Christ. And he says, as you use your gift, do it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Understand that God has given you something special, something beneficial. And as you use your gift, may it reflect the fact that you are a trustworthy steward of what God has entrusted to you. Verse 11, he talks about two broad categories of gifts. He said, whoever speaks, let him speak. Uh, Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. So there are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. There are some gifts that are more visible. There are some gifts that are behind the scene. But regardless of your gifts, if your gift is a speaking gift, Peter says, you speak. As it were, the utterances of God. So those of you who are teaching, though, no, the gentleman who was teaching the, the parables class uh, this morning, as he teaches, as he shares the word of God, he can't worry about giving his idea. He can't worry about giving his you know, thinking. He is to speak as the utterances of God, as thus saith the Lord. My requirement when I preach and teach is not to give you my opinion, my ideas, but I have an obligation to say this is what God's word says. And if you serve, if your gift is in that area, that broad category, if you have the gift of help or showing mercy, even when it comes to your gift, make sure that you are relying upon the power that God supplies. So just because you have a gift doesn't mean you can do it on your own. Peter says, make sure you do it by the strength which God supplies. Why? Why should I speak in that way? As if it's the utterances of God. Why should I serve by the strength that God supplies? Peter says the purpose of all spiritual gifts is so that in all things, God may be glorified. The use of your spiritual gift is not about you. It's not about getting a pat on the back. The use of your spiritual gift is so that God might be glorified, that he might get the glory, that he might get the honor, that he might get the praise in all things. And and when Peter thinks about that, when he understands that the purpose of spiritual gifts is that God would be glorified, it, it causes him to break out in a doxology. He thinks about this whole matter and what he's been writing. And so he says at the very end of verse 11, to whom, that is to God, belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. When Peter thinks about all that God has done for us, how he's gifted his body and given spiritual gifts, and when he thinks about us for God's glory, he just breaks out in praise. He says, God, to you be the glory. To you be the honor, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever and ever and ever. And then he just has to say, amen. Amen, God. My heart resonates with that. Amen. I want you to get the glory forever and ever and ever. The end of all things is at hand. How must we live? We must live a life of prayer. And that requires that we have a sane mind and a sober life. We must live a life of love. And we need to understand that that responsibility is placed above all the other responsibility. And it's a love for one another. It's a love that is fervent. And it's a love that forgives. We must live a life of hospitality. And we must be hospitable with joy in our heart and gladness in our heart. And then we must live a life of service. God has gifted us to serve him and to minister to his people. To think how rich we are and how blessed we are that we have received a a gift, a present at salvation, a grace gift. And God says, use it to serve others. Use it so that God might be glorified in all things. And like Peter, I say to God, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I...
thank you for your wonderful word. I pray that you might allow each of us by your grace to come back and read this word and study this word and to meditate on this word. And I pray especially for this church. I thank you for the work that you're doing here. I thank you for the growth that has taken place. I thank you for the leaders and the men that you're raising up and just the, the ministry of the people of God here. And I pray, oh God, that you might help them to live in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Help them to be a people, a prayer, a people of love, a people who are committed to hospitality, and a people who are committed to service. And Father, we realize that when it comes to all of these responsibilities, that we cling to you, that without you, we can do nothing at all. So help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.